Morning, Calvary. Knock, knock. Owen. Owen to Nebraska. Yes. All right. Hey, my name's Thomas. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and I am excited to be a Buff fan. I hope you are as well. Uh, I'm on staff here at Calvary, and it's my joy to be able to open the scriptures with us, and we are continuing in our series through the book of Revelation. And if you are new this morning, just starting this journey with us, my encouragement is that you'll go back to week one and watch that, because that's going to give a lot of context for how you read through the book of Revelation, because it is a unique book in the New Testament. And so you kind of need week one to understand the frame of how the book is written and how we're going through it. But today we're going to pick up in Revelation chapter 2. So if you want to grab your Bibles and go right there, Revelation chapter 2 begins this new section on the church. And I don't know about you, but when, we, when my wife and I moved to Southern California for a season of our life, one of the first things that we had to do was find a church. How many of y'all been church shopping? How many of you are church shopping this morning? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> When you church shop, like the, just, the, just the phrase church shopping kind of like makes you sick. But there are things in your mind. So like what is important to you about church? What, what do you like about church? What do you dislike about church? And when you go to church, you're like, well, what's really important is first and foremost the size of a church, you might think. Like there's no way I go to a small church. Like everybody knows everybody. They know each other's business. They're a bunch of gossips. I mean, it's basically a cult. But I couldn't go to like a huge mega church because like they're barely Christians, if Christians at all. And so I got to find that like perfect Goldilocks size church that meets my needs. And then, you know, if you're going to go to the right size church, it has to have the right service times because I ain't getting up too early. And But come on, over lunch? You got to be kidding me. Like, it would be nice if they had a Saturday night service, because then I could like, just put it in my day's activities, and then I could sleep in on Sunday. And then if, if you get the service times right, well, then it's all about the music, like what songs they play, what songs they don't play, how loud do they play them. And then from there, it's probably about the message. And it's not so much about the message. It's like, how long is the message? <laughs> like, if, if this dude's talking for 45 minutes, I ain't got time for that. Right? Like we're looking for a 15-minute podcast at best, and it better be relevant, otherwise I'm not interested. If it's just like a running commentary on the Bible, eh, or all I want is the Bible, can you please not tell any jokes in your sermon? <laughs> Does it have right programming? Like what things happen during the week that, that meet my family's needs, my stage of life needs? And so we kind of church shop of this is what's good about churches, this is what's bad about churches. And probably we should start with this. What does Jesus think about churches? Have you ever stopped to consider what Jesus thinks is good about churches? And what he really despises about churches? So Revelation 2 opens two chapters where Jesus himself has written seven letters to seven churches. It's a surprise to some to open up the book of Revelation and find that there's red letters there. Red letters are the words of Jesus Christ that you find in the Gospels. And here you open up Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, and it's all red letter text. Jesus has written seven personal letters to seven historical churches, and then they were taken to those churches. So here's a map I've shown you before. 
Revelation is not just some weird spiritual book. It was written in history, in a place of time, for historical Christians. And so you kind of center yourself around the Mediterranean Sea, and then you zoom in, and this is where those seven churches are. And they're laid out in Revelation chapter 2 through 3 in order of the journey. So if you leave Patmos, the first church you're going to come to is Ephesus, and that's the first church in chapter 2. And then as you can continue the journey, then going to Smyrna, and then finally ending in Philadelphia uh, and, and uh, Laodicea, that's just how they're laid out in the scriptures. And so these are historical churches with a historical context. And each church that is written and referenced is dealing with the realities of life. They have real things going on, pressures on them as Christians, pressures on them as husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and citizens and business owners. And they have to operate as Christians in a real world. And so Jesus is sending seven letters to these seven churches to speak to their realities And normally when we open up the book of Revelation, the first thing we're considering is how do you interpret this thing? But before you consider how to interpret Revelation, you first must begin by allowing Revelation to interpret you. It begins with letters to seven churches of Jesus' evaluation of them, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And before you jump into Revelation and say, well, what do I think about this interpretation or that interpretation? You need to pause and say, what is Jesus' interpretation of how I'm living as a Christian, as our church? What does Jesus think about Calvary Bible Church? What does he think is good? What does he think is bad? What does he think is ugly? Do we even know? And so we're going to take two weeks to look at these letters For some, that's too fast. For others, that's too slow. We're looking at seven churches, and what we're going to do today is we're going to look at two churches that had no critique of them. And then we're going to save the other churches for next week where Jesus has a high critique of them. And so this is just my forewarning. Next week, we're going to look at things that Jesus does not like about his church, and it will be very convicting for us. It will be very challenging to us. And so I'm just going to tell you, it takes a little bit of courage to show up at church next week. This is your trigger warning, okay? If you're looking for a weekend to take off because, like, man, church is is convicting, next week would be a great week for you to go find something else to do. (laughs) So today we're going to look at the two churches. They don't have a critique to them, and yet it still presents a challenge to us. And so there are seven churches, and the first and the last churches, they receive the most severe critiques, And then you have these next two churches, the second and the sixth, that receive really no critique, only encouragement to continue. And then in the middle, there's this mixed bag of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so I first want to start by just giving you a frame of reference of even how to look at these letters, because each letter is written in the same frame. There are six frames that that encapsulate every letter. And one of the most important things when you're reading Scripture is when you see repetition, pay attention to it. They don't get to write massive volumes of literature. They have limited space to write letters. And so if you're going to repeat yourself, pay attention to it. And so here's kind of this six-frame synopsis. The first is this. Every letter begins with an address to the church that it's speaking to. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, to the angel or messenger to the church in Ephesus write. 
Down in verse 8, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna write. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. So you get that pattern. Everything begins with an address to a specific historical church within a historical context. And then it's fascinating that Jesus then introduces himself. He gives himself a title that pertains to their unique realities and struggles. And so his titles are picked up from chapter 1. And so if you missed last week, looking at the titles of Jesus, maybe you want to go back to last week's message. But these are picked up from chapter 1, and then he attributes them to different churches. So in Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember, Revelation is filled with imagery, that is to help locate you in the story. And so we looked last week, the golden lampstands are a picture of the churches. They're to be the lights of the world. These are lamps even in the temple, the presence of God. And these seven stars are the messengers to the churches. Verse 8, the words, the first and the last who died and came to life. Another unique title. Verse 12, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Remember, what's the two-edged sword is the word of God, his, his judgments of the world. And so then it comes with a title of Christ pertaining to the reality of what's going on in that church. And then it follows by this statement, every single church. He says, I know. I know. Look at this. In verse, verse 2, you can even circle these I knows. Let's do all seven of them real quick. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Verse 13, I know where you dwell. Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Chapter 3, Verse 1, I know your works. Verse 8, I know your works. Verse 15, I know your works. What does Jesus want his church to know? That he is familiar with what's going on. You think about that? That Jesus is intimately familiar with what's happening in his church. We said last week, Jesus' picture is that he is walking amongst the lampstands, that he's among his church. And remember, I, I walked off the stage and walked right down in the middle, and people were like, awkward. I didn't even know where to look. Do you look at me? Do you keep looking at the screen? Like, what do we do with this? And at first, it's like, yeah, Jesus is with us. That's encouraging, I think. But for some of us, to learn that Jesus is with us is kind of like learning that there's been a police officer following you for some time. Like you look in the mirror and it says, objects may appear closer, or they, are, they actually are closer than they appear. And you see this police officer behind you and you wonder, how long have they been following me? What do they know? Like have they followed me from my house, from the grocery store? And so when Jesus says, I know your works, I know what's going on. I know what's going on behind the scenes. I know what's going on in leadership. I know what's going on in closed door meetings. I know what's going in the, on in the privacy of your church. I know 
For some people, that's extremely comforting. The Lord knows you, knows the hardship you're in, knows the struggles you have, knows the slander that people have accused you of falsely. For others, it's terrifying. I don't want Jesus to know all these things. I'd be terrified if if Jesus came and publicly shared what was going on in my house. But Jesus is simply introducing himself as the one who knows. I know your works. I know the situation. I know your church, Calvary. I know Calvary. And then from from just this assessment of what does he know about us, then, then he leads the church to action. These are the instructions of come back to me, remember, return, repent. We'll see this next week. What what are the actions that he calls the church to if they're in wrong? What encouragement does he give to the church if they're in the right? And then he has this phrase where every church ends with this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They that have an ear, meaning like if you're willing to listen and pay attention to what Jesus has written to your church, then listen up. If you have an ear, open it. Be willing to humble yourself. Eat some humble pie. Recognize the egg on your own face and be willing to follow his instructions. And what's really important about that is it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every single letter calls that unique church to listen to what he said to all the churches. Do you notice that? It's churches plural. So yes, he has a a letter written specifically to Ephesus. But Ephesus isn't supposed to just receive their letter and say, well, that's to us. Who cares about the rest? Ephesus is to pay attention to what God has said to all the churches. He who has an ear, she who has an ear, listen up to what Jesus has said to all of his churches. And so what Jesus has said to each church is really for every church. Because a lot of churches, what they'll do in this text is they'll say, well, which church is us? Which one are we like? Which one do we have to pay attention to? Or they look in the the rearview mirror of history, and they say, okay, looking in the rearview mirror, where can you see all these unique churches? Which one are we today? And then you dismiss all the other ones. That's not what we're called to do. Well, really what we're called to do is open up everybody's mail and say, how can we learn from every church? It's like watching game film. You watch game film, and you get to see the whole game. And yes, you are paying attention to your performance and your position. But gosh, if if someone is critiqued on their performance, critiqued on their effort, are you not also paying attention to how that applies to you? Are you not also willing to listen to the head coach's instructions to other teammates so that you can apply that to your life? And so as we go through these letters, it's not which church are we and which church will we listen to. It's how can we listen, open our ears to what Jesus has said to all his churches. She and he who have an ear to listen, pay attention to what Jesus has written to all the churches, all seven of them. And then there is this line, and we'll look more into this next week. 
It's about conquering. This is victory. The one who listens, the one who applies my instructions, there is victory for them. And there's a unique victory that he expresses for each of the churches, which again applies to anyone who's willing to listen to what Jesus has said to all the churches. Does that make sense? And so as we look at these letters, we're looking at what does Jesus have to say to us? And what Jesus has to say to the Calvary Bible Church is not just in one church. He has something to say to us from all his letters. Now, we're going to start with the two that don't receive any critique, Smyrna and Philadelphia. But it's not because their life is easy. You would think if there's no critique, if they're just crushing it as a church, man, they just must be doing awesome They must have the biggest building in town, the best programs in town. They must be the most influential in town, the wealthiest in town. And you quickly find out that's not true of either church. So let's first look at Smyrna. So chapter 2, verse 8. See if you can see this structure that we just looked at in this particular letter. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Do you see the structure in that letter? Okay, let's read Philadelphia, and we'll come back, and we'll look at Smyrna. To the angel, this is chapter 3, verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet... You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn what I have, they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which came down from my God out of heaven and my own name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what is God saying to these two churches? Something that's similar and unique. Well, both churches are experiencing persecution. Do you see that? 
And their primary accuser is what is referred to here as the synagogue of Satan. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be called the synagogue of Satan. It doesn't sound good. And what that's a reference to is actually probably back in John chapter 8, verse 44, where there are a bunch of religious people that would not listen to Jesus. And they kept dismissing Jesus as this false teacher. And they said, we have our father Abraham. We don't have to listen to you. And Jesus says, I am from the line of Abraham. If you knew Abraham, you would know me. If you loved Abraham, you would love me. In fact, you don't love me because you don't belong to your heavenly father. You belong to the devil. And the devil is a liar and a murderer and a thief. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue. He divides. He destroys. That's the work of the devil. And you religious people, you fake religious people, who accuse everyone, who, pu- who push yourself up in pride and look down on everyone else, well, you belong to your father, the devil. And here again, you, you see that there is a group of, of people who claim to be Jewish, who are persecuting this church, who are lying about them, slandering them, who are trying to divide the family of God. And here again, they're called the synagogue. They belong to the devil, the liar, this thief, this murderer. That's what he does, and that's what they're doing to Christians. Now, in Smyrna, it's interesting. Go to chapter 2, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty. So again, John had said in chapter 1, your brother, fellow brother, in the tribulation. Like, we are experiencing troubles. That's what tribulation means. Hardships, suffering, sorrows. I'm in it with you. You're not alone. And one of the churches is in suffering in this tribulation and has this poverty. Now, what's interesting about their poverty is they don't live in a town that's poor. Smyrna is a port city on the coast. And all these goods and services and, and, and wealth from India and Egypt, they, they come through Smyrna. And there's great wealth and riches there. There's great businesses there. In fact, there's a massive temple there to give worship to the emperor. So why is this church poor? They shouldn't be, except for this. Their allegiance to Jesus Christ has kept them from many contracts, has kept them out of many business deals, has kept them out of the marketplace at times because they refuse to pledge allegiance to Caesar as Lord. And so the Chamber of Commerce comes down and says, hey, who, who should we sign contracts with? Who should we do business deals with? Who should we use as trade partners? Well, let's all pledge allegiance to Caesar the Lord. And the Christians say, no, only God is Lord. Only Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, then we're not, we're not doing any business with you. Well, let's all go hang out at the local temple and, and we'll enjoy pagan worship and all of its sensualities. And the Christians say, I can't. The Lord has called me to be holy, to be set apart. I cannot participate in that lifestyle. And they say, well, then I'm not going to offer you the next contract, the next business. And so they're in poverty because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Because the Romans 
have placed them on the outside of the marketplace. I know your tribulation and your poverty, and it says, but you are rich. Just a reminder, though you might be materially poor in this life, if you have Christ, you are the richest among us. The true riches of life are to belong to Jesus Christ, to know him, be known by him, to be loved by him, to be forgiven by him, to be redeemed by him, to be saved by him. Though you are poor, you really you're rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, like they've slandered you. See, the Roman Empire had, they weren't stupid. They, they, they had a pantheon of gods. And there were the Jews who said there's only one God. And so they made room for the Jews in the Roman Empire. And so could the Christians be associated with the Jews? We believe in one God, and Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of this one God. But the Jews slander them. And so even Rome puts the Christians on the outside because the Jews are putting the Christians on the outside. They refuse to accept Jesus Christ. And it says, do not fear for what you're about to suffer. Now, you would think if Jesus is going to write a letter to a church that's already in tribulation, how should the letter go? I know your troubles. I know your struggles. But they're coming to an end. That's not how this letter goes. I know your tribulations, the sufferings you're in, the slander that's against you, and it's going to get worse. Is that comforting? I think in a sense it is, because the way in which it's described is to know who's in charge. What's, what's, who's in, the one in charge of all of this? He says, do not fear. This is one of the greatest commands in the scriptures. Christian, do not fear. Have no fear in life. Do not fear. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So you're in tribulation suffering. The devil's going to throw you in jail, in prison for 10 days. Now, what is this 10 days thing? Well, do you know another story in your Old Testament where someone was tested for 10 days? This is worth 10,000 religious points. Come on. <laughs> Testing for 10 days, Old Testament. Daniel. So Daniel's in Babylon in exile. He's told to remember, eat all this food from the king's table. And he says, I'm not going to pollute my body with those things. God has called me not to drink and, and ingest these things. Would you allow me to follow a Jewish diet? And they say, well, you're going to look worse than all these other Babylonians. And he says, give us how many days? Ten days. Give us ten days to be tested. And after ten days, you can evaluate our condition. That's what Jesus says. For ten days, you're going to be tested in sufferings. And then we'll evaluate your condition. And the only thing you really need to know about 10 days is this, I think, today. Is that it is determined, is a fixed period of time, it is known. So they're going to enter into suffering. It's not going to get easier for them. But that suffering is already predetermined. And it is known by their God. And so they're going to be thrown into prison for a period of time. And their faith is going to be tested. And it says, the one who remains till death. Like, be faithful unto death. What is the call of the church? Like, why does Jesus even care about these things? 
is because the church is called to be a witnessing community to the world. We're the lampstand, the light of the world. And we're not to diminish our light or pollute our light. We're allowed to shine it, allow it to shine bright. So even unto death, let your light shine bright, and I will give you the crown of life. That's the victor's crown. Now, who is the one saying this? Remember, the title is important. Back to the top, the words of the first and the last. That's the title of God. There's nothing before me. There's nothing out after me. I mean, your suffering's not outside of me. I'm in control. And he says, what? The one who died and came to life. Like, I went to death first. I was slandered against first. I was falsely accused first. I witnessed till the end. I died and I rose. And if you die, I will raise you too. It's in his title, in his name, is the encouragement. The one who went through death into life. And so be faithful unto death. There's many Christians that embrace a familiar phrase from Francis Assisi, who says, share the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Have you ever, you ever heard that? This is such a great phrase for the modern evangelical Christian never to use words to talk about the gospel. It's like, I'm just never going to bring up Jesus in word because that's, that's challenging. And so I'm just going to allow myself to always with deeds share the gospel, which is a good thing. But this corrects that and says, share the gospel at all times. If necessary, use death. Share the gospel at all times, in your life and in your words. And if it costs you your life, that's okay. That's not the end of the story. There's a victor's crown. For I have gone through death into life. I'm the one who raised from the dead. Now, there are martyrs in this world that will weaponize their death to bring suffering and harm to others. Is this what, that, is this what we're called to do? No, no. There are religions that will weaponize their death to cause others suffering. This is a cause, this is a call to say, even if you're suffering unto death, like you receive the suffering, you receive the hardship, be faithful even through death. Now, in this church in Smyrna, there was a bishop by the name of Polycarp, probably a disciple of John, someone who knew John and received this letter from John. He was the bishop in Smyrna, and at one point, the proconsul of Rome accused him of being, this is, what, this is what Christians were always accused of, being atheists, not believing in the pantheon of God. And there they called him to give an account, and they were going to kill him, become a martyr. Martyr, essentially, is just someone who bears witness. A martyr unto death is what Polycarp was known for. There's actually a book written, the, the Martyrdom of Polycarp, an original letter that we know this story. And this man, who probably read this letter from Jesus, that you'll be tested, you will suffer unto death, remain faithful, crown of life, I'm victorious, you'll be victorious. Here is the historical account of Polycarp shortly after this letter was received. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On hearing that he was, they tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. 
Like, give up this Christianity thing. I mean, Polycarp, you're 86 years old. Have respect for yourself. Give up this myth. He replies, 86 years I have served him, Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Then they responded, I have wild animals here. And the proconsul said, I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, he said, and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire that is coming in the judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. They bound him with his hands behind him like a distinguished ram chosen from the great flock for sacrifice. He looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. And there they lit the flame. The flame did not consume him until they pierced him through with sword. It's amazing how historical these writings are. This is not fantasy. This is not mysticism. This is Jesus Christ knowing his church, what they will go through, and calling them to faithfulness. And Polycarp had ears to hear. What would we need to hear from that? As Christians in America, it's so easy to love our comfort, to compromise so that we could be in the marketplace, to renounce Jesus Christ and pledge allegiance to whatever. And here, Jesus says, Christian, Christian, I know your tribulation, and it might not end, but be faithful unto death. Now, some of you are in here going, man, Polycarp's like varsity-level Christian. Like, I, I'm barely on the practice team. Like, I have no energy to stand before the pro-council and be like, do your worst. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity. I'm barely making it. That's where Philadelphia comes in. And I don't know who fast-forwarded the clock, but shame on you. <laughs> so very briefly, Philadelphia. He says, I know your work, starting in verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Remember, he says, I have the keys to hold the door open. This open door is a reference to whenever the gospel went out. This is Acts 14. You know, Paul's in Iconium, and he says, there's been an open door for us to the Gentiles to share the gospel. And the Jews came up from Antioch and started stoning Paul because he shared the gospel, this open door with the Gentiles. He says, I know, behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you will have but little power, and yet you have kept your word and have not denied my name. I know you're barely making it. I know you feel so small and you're ready to give up. Like, you're not Polycarp. But I also see that you are faithful, 
that you have kept my word and have not denied my name, even though it feels like you're completely out of Gaius. And he says to them, I will vindicate you. Like all these people that are slandering you, saying the door, the, the door is closed on you. That's the, that's the slandering coming from the synagogue of Satan. Like God doesn't love you. That door's closed to you. He won't save you. Jesus said, no, I'm the one that opens the door. They're not the ones that hold it open. I'm the one that opens it, and I've opened it for you. And I'm not going to close it on you. You're welcome to come into my kingdom. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. This is our call, instruction, patient endurance. He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, that can either mean keep you from it, like remove you from it, or keep you through it. But you will make it. You feel like you have no faith left. You're on fumes. I'm here to tell you, there's an end in sight. He says this to this church, which is unique. He knows them. I know you're on fumes, but because you haven't denied my name, I'm going to keep you through the trial. You will make it. And he says this bizarre kind of like word picture, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. So you're in a place of, of weakness. I'm going to move you to a place of strength. Pillars are what uphold the house. I'm going to move you into my house, and you're going to be a pillar of strength in my house, and I'm going to write my name on you so that you never have to be afraid of departing or not being accepted here. You will belong with me in strength forever. I will bring you into the structure of the house that I'm building. That's what he says. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I will write my name of my God and my name of the new city, new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, she who has an ear, they that have an ear, pay attention to what Jesus is writing. What does Jesus care about? Why, does the, why do these two churches get just a great accommodations? is because of their faithfulness and endurance. And for us in America, we should ask ourselves, where is our faithfulness and do we have the endurance? And the two titles that Jesus gives here is I am the first and the last. Nothing's outside me. I'm the one that has the keys. I open the doors. I close them. I went through death follow me to life. We'll pick up the next five tomorrow. Just kidding, next Sunday. <laughs> if you so choose to come back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these personal letters that you have written to the church that you love. And Father, I just ask for us as Calvary Bible Church that we would always remain faithful, that we would never deny your name, that you would give us the strength for endurance. And so, Father, I pray for my friends in this room in their present tribulations, hardships, and sufferings, perhaps because they hold the name Jesus. Father, I pray that these letters would be an encouragement to them, that they would see the brotherhood and sisterhood that has remained faithful before them to give them strength to be faithful now. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. 
and give us the courage to be conquerors, that we might receive the crown of life, a place in your heavenly home. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.